Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. We're going to shift gears a bit and go a little lighter in tone on this episode. Our previous discussions have identified areas within the state and local tax profession that often get overlooked and placed on the proverbial back burner. We have discussed how we have to deliver the bad news to businesses about risks and exposures with a dark Eeyore-esque cloud following us. However, Today, we are going to showcase a woman who has been described as being incredibly positive in her state tax journey, Ms. Jeanette Lohman. Jeanette is a practicing attorney for more than 30 years and is an industry leader at the Institute for Professionals in Taxation and the IPT's liaison to the American Bar Association's tax section. She believes people have the best intentions and will learn more about what that means for businesses and tax professionals. We're excited to welcome Jeanette. Jeanette, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. And as always, we have Miss Judy Vorndron of Saltivation. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so we're going to dive right in. And Jeanette, you have a very varied background that includes law and accounting, government, industry. Can you walk us through how you initially got into state and local tax and what opportunities for what opened up for you as a result of kind of progressing through your career? <laughs> How long is this webcast? However long you want. <laughs> That's right. Well, well it actually, it all started back in 1979 when I was an intern with Touche Ross and Company, which is now part of Deloitte. And uh, I was also a law student. And because I was literally the low man on the totem pole, uh, I got to do what nobody else wanted to do, and that was usually state and local tax. So every state and local tax assignment that came into the office ended up on my desk. Um, Now, I must say that my career could have taken a turn at that point because I also got all of the ERISA stuff. But from from that standpoint, uh, I could deck ERISA but not solve. So um, what ended up happening was uh, I ended up, you know, through a few other iterations, uh, coming back to... uh, um, well, as I said, I was a shameless job hopper, you know, and the jobs just sort of found me and I, I followed my bliss. And uh, my husband was the one who labeled me the shameless job hopper. But um, what happened was in 1979, of course, uh, that was right before the 81, the 82, and the 86 federal tax acts. And what ended up happening was state and local tax went from being sort of the the least favored child, the stepchild of tax, into being the main event for most companies, particularly the multinational companies, uh, because the state lo- total state and local tax liability was now exceeding the federal. So uh, when that happened, um, I shamelessly job hopped again and became McDonnell Douglas Corporation's very first full-time state and local tax lawyer. Once again, it was because nobody else wanted to do it. And I think that state and local tax is probably the best-kept secret in all of the law, let alone tax, uh, because it's different, it's varied, it's wild. And at the same time, because I was the only 
full-time state and local tax lawyer, uh, probably at the time, uh, at least in St. Louis, I started teaching state and local tax at the LLM program at Washington University because nobody else knew what it what was all about. So um, I was teaching it and simultaneously practicing it. And then uh, after another bout at my good old buddy, which is now Deloitte, but which was still too schloss, um, I got this strange call um, at McDonnell Douglas. Um, no, I'm sorry. I forgot a step. I started with Deloitte. I went to Emerson Electric. I went back to Deloitte, or what is Tushross, and then I was uh, at McDonnell Douglas. And while there, I was the director of tax planning and assistant general counsel. In fact, I had been promoted out of my state and local tax job back into federal and international, and I was supervising state and local, which was a disappointment because I had so much fun in state and local. Then I got that strange phone call that we all fear on behalf of the new governor, Mel Carnahan, uh, new governor of Missouri, saying, hey, Jeanette, uh, you want to become the director of revenue. And I thought there really is such a person. <laughs> I thought it was, a, I thought the director of revenue was just sort of a, a political person or a, a figure of speech. But nonetheless, uh, I, uh, took the call, I took the job, and uh, once again had to reinvent myself in a whole new different position. I went from being the, uh, uh, being the uh, head, of head of tax, if you will. I was director of tax planning, so I was essentially the, uh, the head of state and local, if you will, for the largest taxpayer in Missouri, and then I jumped over to become the evil tax collector. And so, and I still have the longevity uh, record, continuous service record as director of, of revenue. I lasted almost five years. Uh, but that's, you know, that's another can of worms. But uh, what ended up happening is after I became the director of revenue, that sealed my fate. The only thing I really had, the only marketable skill I really had was in state and local tax. But something else, uh, you know, everybody, you know, the accounting firms all wanted to hire me when I was ready to leave. But having done six years and eight years time in public accounting, I didn't think that was an option. And McDonnell Douglas wanted to put me on civic leave when I took the position because they wanted me back. But by the time I was ready to leave. Uh, McDonnell Douglas was no longer McDonnell Douglas. It had been acquired by Boeing. And my former job, you know, if I had stayed in that position, I probably would have been riffed. So uh, here I am, director of revenue, and nobody wants to hire me. So when I uh, started uh, interviewing with law firms, everybody wanted to talk to me because it was kind of novel. Hey, they felt the same way I did about directors of revenue. You mean there really are people like that? <laughs> right. But, but I had this big conflict of interest, like with everybody in the state. And so I could only, my, my getting, you know, the, I always used to like to say that there are five ways to leave a position of director of revenue and only one of them is pleasant. So I had to, I could only talk to folks who approached me 
But when they they would call me in, I thought, oh my goodness, I have totally trashed my career uh, unless I want to be career state, at which point my career would hinge on whoever became the next governor. So <laughs> I put myself in peril without really knowing it. And um, law firms would call me in and interview me, but they would say, where's your book of business? You know, um, and forget about, don't forget about the conflicts. Okay, so you have no book of business, nothing but conflicts. And let's see, you've been either a, an administrator or a bureaucrat for the last 13 years. What do we do with you? You know, you're too old uh, to be an associate. You're too young to be of counsel. But we can't possibly make you partner because you can't support yourself. So they would take me and put me through rigorous interview processes and then say, nah, we'll pass. There was only one firm uh, that was interested in even giving me a chance. And uh, that firm, when I walked in the door, to, much to my horror, they really didn't have a state and local tax practice. Uh, they wanted me to form one. And they basically said, here's your, here's your office, here's your telephone, here's your computer, have fun to it. And I was terrified. Uh, and the next two years were probably the hardest two years of my life uh, because I didn't know what I was doing. I, I'd never been a partner in a law firm before. I'd never been an associate in a law firm before. Uh, and I didn't, I made some critical mistakes that I've helped counsel other folks who are in that situation out of. And that is, if you're in a situation where you have no business of your own, your best source of business is your other partners. Unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to figure that out until later on, but I did figure it out. And so uh, that's where the cookie list came in. You know, you ask everybody, I don't know why the cookie list has turned into to, uh, such a novelty, but uh, what happened was after my first year, uh, as a partner in a law firm, I barely covered my draw in terms of the revenue I generated. But, but that was actually probably uh, the heartbreak was that I was conflicted out of enough business to have made my career because of the conflicts of being director of revenue. It wasn't that I, I couldn't attract business. It was that I couldn't take it. So at the end of the first year, um, there were six people who really did something to try and help my career. They either became my clients and trusted me with their business, or they got me speaking engagements. I had plenty of time to write great speeches because I certainly didn't have a lot of clients at the time. It was just one of those things that people would go out of their way to um, ask me to join a board or something. I still had that glamour of being a former director which, uh, in my mind, was worth about 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody else was impressed, and I guess that's the only thing that, that mattered. So with these six people, um, at Christmas time, I sent everybody chocolate. And the next year was a little bit better. I managed to cover my draw and my overhead share. Uh, but there were 20 people on the list. In other words, once you're on the list, uh, you have to die to get off of the list because you're somebody who helped me when, I, when nobody else was looking and nobody else cared, right? So nonetheless, the Pilgrim's Progress, it took me three years to finally figure out what I was doing wrong. 
And what I was doing wrong is that I was so worried about my own plight that I wasn't focusing on the plight of my clients. And after a while, and actually I hired help because I knew how to network. You know, I don't know many people in our crowd who can't work a cocktail party, but <laughs> but um, that's not really learning how to sell business. And the only trick to selling business is that it's what can you do for them? And who are your clients and what are their needs, not your needs? Your needs are totally irrelevant. And if you can figure out whether you can give value to the client, all the, all the better. If you can't, then I think you're ethically obligated to find somebody who can. You know, because it's all about what they need, not about what you need. And once I figured that out, um, I had no more problems in that regard. None whatsoever. Well, not conflicts, obviously, but... Uh, no more issues uh, with regard to that. But anyway, the cookie list uh, kept growing because, as I said, once you're on it, you're not never taken off of it unless you, you die, and unfortunately. And in some instances, I still send the widower or the widow the cookies because they become popular. Over the years, <laughs> well, not over the years, um, they, in about 2009, I saw these adorable little handmade turkeys. Yes. And they were on, on pops and they were on on popsicles. And I laughed so hard when I saw the turkeys, I thought they were the cutest thing I'd ever seen. And I asked my confectioner if he could uh make that and I shifted because they were turkeys, I shifted the gifts to Thanksgiving and it actually created um sort of a revolution because I tried different flavors of Oreos and different types of chocolate, but after a few years of trying, everybody liked the mint-flavored fresh Oreos with hand-dipped homemade dark chocolate with the handmade turkeys. And everybody, I actually was threatened if I ever changed the formula. So, um, I can but, say with certainty, I have eaten probably 90% of every year's box that comes <laughs> So I don't know if I should thank you or be real mad at you, but yes, I am the, I'm the turkey consumer in our office. And I think we get two boxes because Alex's from Minnesota come to each office. So then I'm double mad or double happy. I don't know. And we don't bother to send them to him. No, absolutely not. No, but my, my assistant who is brilliant and makes me look really good. We have to start, you know, I've actually started writing the cards um, really? because there's so many people on the list now and I write all the cards by hand because it's actually my favorite part of the holidays because I get to say, I get to relive every nice thing that anyone's done for me over the past 21 years and uh, I know every one of the people on the list and why they're on the list that it just makes me, it's like this big rush of karma and it gives me great pleasure to still be able to say thank you even 21 years later yeah the original yeah. six people are still on the list that is funny you know i was just in pagosa visiting doing a little tour of colorado and uh went and saw a buddy of mine who would relocate it down there from denver and i'm like what are you doing in pagosa right which is a lovely community google it but i'm like it's kind of remote how are you making this work well funny story just seeing him made me realize he and I got our master's attacks together and I know my partner at my firm because of him, because he said, you should get to know Alan. 
and look him up. And next thing you know, he's now continues to be my partner all these 15 years later because of this man I went to school with 30 years ago. Isn't that funny? Those connections. And it was a really solidifying time of like, oh my gosh, this is why I'm here and why I'm with who I'm with. And all these relationships have made such an impact on me. It's funny you say that. I I don't do cookies. Um, something to think about though, honestly, because it really is those connections that matter, which is obviously why you're here today with us because of all the things you've done for me and my experience dealing with you with IPT, dealing with you, experiencing <laughs> your leadership and the things you've done as a committee and a head of this organization, an organization I've been very passionate about because I'm able to double dip my CPA, my law license, which is why I've always gone to the New Orleans conference all these years. And it's such, it's such a great conference. That's why I've, I've been going to it probably 20 years, you know, and because of you, you and, and Muffy, honestly, the two of you have been such, such example setters for um, me as a young, you know, a little bit younger than you, but not much. <laughs> well, but, but something I want to go, I want to go back to, you know, Jeanette, that you had started with and Judy, this is a very similar story to how you got started in this you know, for some of the people who might not be familiar with your story, it was very much, oh, this is going to be clerical. I'm going to relegate you as the woman to go do this thing. So do you, I don't know if you just want to like give us a little glimpse of that piece of, you know, how you got started in this area that, you know, involves to turkeys once a year that I'm... Enjoying. Enjoying. It's funny you say that too, Jeanette, because it was me and another guy, both attorneys at in public accounting at PWC, and someone needed to go out and do the sales tax returns for this company that was a giant office supply company that had gobbled up all the smaller office supply companies, made somebody do the sales tax returns. And I said it was me or this other guy, we're both staff. And I said, Well, why isn't he doing it? And the partner said to me, It's really clerical. And I I just I didn't really think anything of it. I said, Okay, all right, I'll go do it. But here I am, however many, almost 30 years later, well, 24 from 25, 26, I don't know, something like that, right? I've been, I don't know, gosh, right? And, you know, it was because of that, two equally people levels, and I get picked and I think back now and I'm like, well, he was a guy and I was the girl and I was clerical, therefore I should go do this. And then I thought the same thing as you was, this isn't clerical, this is fascinating. I mean... I remember for this company, I was remitting $1 million of sales tax revenue a month to the state of California alone. That's a lot of money I was making sure the state got. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing, you know, doing these sales tax returns. And I was doing them by hand and best friends with AP to get the returns done. And there was piles of money going to these governments. And I thought, this is clerical. This is real money. And I realized out of a hundred million, they were making a million dollars. That's a lot of money to me at that level, right? So right. it's a funny thing, the money and the value system, because it's clerical in a way that that's the form, but it's how you get to the form that's not clerical, right? So that is really what became fascinating for me in the space and why I've continued to grow in that area. In fact, they had just started public accounting to have state and local groups. Because you may, maybe we're even, I don't know if they have that in Missouri at, De, at Touche. I was at Deloitte after I was at PwC. But, um, you know, the salt groups were very new to the firms back then. And we hire departments of revenue executives like yourself to come in and tell us how to remediate all our clients' woes, right? And that's when the VDA program originated, was invented by people like you. 
Well, that's what I thought was, was interesting. Do you think that that conflict of interest, because we know, you know, someone from, you know, the state of Colorado just went in-house to be, to go work for an accounting firm. Do you think that would have been an issue had you gone to an accounting firm or was that only a conflict because you went to a law firm? Yeah. Because we find that like, it's good to have those revenue people in your back pocket because they, you know, they, they know the intricacies of the system and how to get things through or how to make things happen. Right. Um, so we would find incredible value in that, but it, it, it appears as if you didn't have that same, you know, level of welcome, open armsness. Well, I think that in the industry, the, the, uh, if you want to hire people who really know what they're doing, you want to hire the people who are actually doing the tax processing on the inside. The director of revenue is clueless, you know? <laughs> In, in Missouri, they call this tourist because the average life expectancy was about 18 months. Oh, and really? so, yeah, but the, here, this is worth the, the price of listening to the, the podcast, if there is one. You know, one of the, uh, one of the, the, the most uh, important thing I learned when I was the director of revenue was that my assistant, whom I inherited, and it didn't matter whether we went from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican or whatever. For instance, um, uh, it had been a Republican administration in the past, and I came in with the Democrats. Uh, but the, uh, the most important single thing I learned from being director of revenue is that my assistant, who'd been there 40 years, knew everyone and everything. And everybody was rude to her. Everybody was rude to her. They'd call and they want, they wanted to just plow past her and get to the director of revenue. Well, she was the only really person who could help them and they were basically killing themselves. And besides that, the other, the other important thing is, you know, first of all, if you want to find somebody at the department, you want to call the director's line, but you want to, to basically tell your story to whoever answers the phone. Because chances are that's the most important and influential person in the entire Department of Revenue. And another thing you want to consider, people always want to hire me because they think I can jump straight to the top, which is the last thing you want to do. You know, if it's in your own best interest, because I guarantee you that um, you need to go up the system level by level without offending anyone along the way. Because if you want to get something resolved successfully, you have to work through the system. And sometimes it takes longer, but a lot of times it avoids often costly litigation. And you get a much better result if you basically uh, pay credence. Like for instance, I think that it's far better if you can work out the issues at the audit level you've won. And nobody likes litigation. And I spend most of my time trying to work myself out of a job, which is what, you know, which which may seem to be counterintuitive, but quite frankly, that's why, uh, that's why I think uh, just knowing, you're right, I do know how the system works, but it's exactly the opposite of people who haven't been in the system it's exactly the opposite of how they understand. I'd much rather work with the frontline collection specialists and the frontline auditors. Um, although I don't, uh, I don't really think that um, 
Well, let's put it this way. I'm more or less trial counsel. Although Matt Landwehr, my trial partner, tries cases. You know, in other words, I write great briefs. <laughs> and I've had all the experience and the issues and everything. But uh, uh, quite frankly, I think that it takes a particular skill to be able to argue before a commissioner or to be able to uh, actually try a case. Right. No, it's a very unique skill set. Well, it's a very unique skill set. And the most important part of the skill set is basically dumbing an issue down uh, to a level that the judge understands why you're upset and understands what the issues are. In fact, the the best legal writing and the best legal arguments I've seen are the most simple. Well, right, because you're often not maybe dealing with a judge who's a, it's, you're not in a tax court. You're dealing with the same person who's hearing any number of cases or, you know, disputes or whatnot. Exactly. Exactly. And so from that standpoint, uh, um, it takes a, it takes a team and you have to be able to work well you know, work well with each other. Like, for instance, my trial attorney for my first 12 years in practice uh, was one of the best appellate lawyers in our firm. And he had the audacity to retire, and I went into mourning. And he, <laughs> rec- and he recommended Matt Landwehr, who was a, a young whippersnapper. He just made partner. Now, this is a long time ago. Uh, Matt, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> Right, because he's been working with me now for well over a decade, but uh, basically he impressed me so much in one particular incident that I literally made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And, but he had to learn state and local tax. I even made him take my class at the law school. Um, oh, you bet. And I made him go to the seminars, the IPT seminars and the other and, uh, and now he's he involved to, and he's full bore. He's all in it to win it. So you he's all, he's, believer. All, he's always been all in it to win it. But, you know, that's the funny thing. I have uh, convinced uh, a young man as bright and personable and wonderful as Matt. He truly is one of the most marvelous human beings I've ever met. But he absolutely thrives on salt. And I remember when I first stole him, uh, the, the problem with being a trial lawyer and being in a law firm is that uh, you don't have any time to develop business, so you're always working on other people's cases. Okay, and I gave Matt the opportunity not only to, to share the business, if you will, with me, but to inherit my entire practice. You know, and that, uh, but I, I don't, I believe in giving my flowers while people are living. I don't like to send flowers <laughs> to dead people. Right. And I like to receive them while I'm still living. Right? Yes. We'll note, we'll <laughs> so, note so that. So from that standpoint, but, but one of the things that, that's so exciting to me about SOLT is I literally love my clients. I work for my clients. Uh, my partners don't object because they do quite well. <laughs> I love the people with whom I work. Uh, I have the best clients in the world. I have the best coworkers in the world. We're bringing up a wonderful crop of young associates who uh, are just, you know, just absolutely uh, excited to be part of it. And because you see, the the interesting thing about salt is that there are only a handful of us really uh, in in the area of tax law. There are only a handful of us across the country. 
and we all do the same thing. And we all speak at the same conferences and we all refer each other business and we all, we're, we're like a family. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really true because my salt friends are closer to me than my quote unquote normal friends back home because I don't have, I don't spend any time with my normal friends except on holidays or special occasions. And I see my salt friends all the time. In fact, I talk to them all the time. Yeah, we have no competitors in this industry. We have only colleagues. And that's, that's the beautiful part of it. And it's so collaborative because there's everything so unique. You never see the same issue in the same exact way because every industry is unique. Every business is unique. And therefore, you're always having to kind of collaborate and think through the issues. And no, I think it's really fascinating. And there's definitely a thing about people who like it and they kind of get into it. And they're constantly just thinking about, well, what about this? And what about that? As you know, the laws weren't written to deal with today's business. So you have to adapt and that makes it kind of fun. Well, and part of that too is not, you know, and Judy, you bring this up a lot when, you know, we're discussing with clients is, you know, in audit scenarios, that's not public, right? So you don't know what you can, what you can resolve in an audit. And so that's part of that information sharing. And as, you know, state and local tax professionals, we can't be an expert on everything everywhere, right? That's, you know, it's impossible. So, you know, we try to be really good at it, but part of what makes us good is knowing who to call next when we don't know. Yep. Well, yes, it's wonderful. I I know local counsel in all 50 states. I know accounting firms in all 50 states. Uh, When Well, actually, that's an interesting thing in terms of cross-referrals, too, because a lot of times um, someone will be looking for a lawyer or an accountant with a particular type of expertise in another state. It won't have anything at all to do with state and local tax, but I'll still call my contacts because I have national contacts right. for them to see if somebody in their firm is eligible to handle it. I mean, and we, we you know, we loan each other uh, conference rooms for depositions. We we do all kinds of things for each other and we do it without thinking and we do it without uh, expectation of quid pro quo. And it's, it's sort of like having uh, the biggest and best family that one could imagine. Um, I just love it. Uh, I couldn't do anything else. Well, and it's funny you say that, Jeanette, because I think about why I've been involved in IPT and I did that at the big four where we had a compendium of people because the national state and local practice had become fairly large over my career. But honestly, when I left and I went to a regional firm, I didn't have that anymore. And I relied on APT, IPT. And then it's ICDABA is also, which I'm also part of, has a SALT team, which is growing. But the IPT was just, there's just no question. If I had a question, I called somebody at IPT. I look it up. And I look at their state and I call them up. And here's another, here's another exciting thing. One of the reasons why I absolutely love the IPT and think it's just a, a hugely premier organization is, number one, they freely accept as members uh, those of us in consulting or accounting or in law. Yes. In other words, mm-hmm. you're not treated as secondhand, secondhand citizens. As you know, uh, you know, they invite us when they want us to speak or something, but they don't really want us to do it. And we respect that and we don't solicit and we don't do awful things during, or at least people don't last very long if they try that kind of stuff. But the one thing that they have though, that no one else has really come up with is the, the CMI certification. 
And that is becoming more and more popular. In fact, I'm about ready to, if I ever, I'm fortunately during COVID, I've been so busy, I haven't had time to do a lot, uh, a lot of uh, un-COVID related stuff. But quite frankly, um, the CMI is becoming the credential in salt. Huh. And, and the good part about it is, that well, you know, for instance, if anybody can be a lawyer, but nobody knows what type of lawyer they are, anybody can be a CPA, but who knows what they practice? I don't even know if they they if if five percent of this of the CPA exam even involved tax. But uh, quite frankly, uh, if you're a CMI, that lets people know that you have specialized in at least one area of salt. And for the first time ever. Um, a potential client, a very large company, called me up, and the first question the person asked was a big sales tax issue: uh, "Was are you a CMI?" Hmm. That's and awesome. Fortunately, I was being fortunately I was being able I was able to tell them yes, you know. And in sales tax, uh, I was the only candidate in their beauty pageant uh, who was a CMI and an attorney, and I got the case. But it wasn't because it was because I was a CMI, and that that spoke volumes to me. And I think that the uh, the the real key is that in the future, I believe because the uh, right now the IPT has a great deal going on. Here's another reason why you should listen to the podcast: because if you're an attorney with I believe over ten years of experience or a CPA with over 10 years of experience, there is an opportunity for you to waive both the schools and sit for the income tax CMI without having to go through the schools. Yeah, and that's because we're trying to encourage more people, more income tax CMIs to take it. But you know, there, once again, you still have to meet all the educational requirements. You have to have, a, they do it on a point system. And that point system is readily available, but they'll let you, it's a one-time offer only and it expires at the end of the year. And even though I have a CCIP and, and credits and incentives, and I also have the sales tax CMI, I am thoroughly tempted to uh, also sit for the, um, the income tax CMI just because they're going to let me waive the schools. Well, yeah, that's why I haven't done it. I mean, I'm duly licensed like you and I'm like, that's just one more thing to focus on. Not that I devalue it, but honestly, it's the schools. They're, they're more rudimentary at this point in my career, 25, six years into it. I, I don't, yeah, I struggle with spending a week or several weeks, as you know, to get the background that's very redundant of what I've already known. And I've done some of it, but I just haven't, I, I've actually encouraged some of my people to do it who could use it. But I, it's, it's one of those things where it's time, money, you know, but that's, I didn't realize that. And I didn't even know they were doing that for the income. Are they doing that for sales tax too? No, just for income. But um, I think that because of COVID, well, no, because of COVID, you have to remember that as the, uh, I am now past president of IPT, but the second half of my presidency, I spent canceling conferences. Yeah, it was the most depressing, horrible. Oh, the, I can't even tell. I was looking forward to New Orleans. I always go to New Orleans every year. <laughs> oh, it broke, no, no, no. It, it literally broke my heart because the three New Orleans conferences are my all-time favorites. 
Yep. And uh, as you know, you're showing the Muses shoe, and I'm wearing my Muses hat. That's right, my Muses shoe. Um, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But uh, um, oh, I've actually at some when I've been giving presentations at conferences, I've actually had folks from New Orleans come up to me and say. Would you make me a shoe? <laughs> no, you have to win the IPT, you know, whatever, become the king or queen. Well, you know, I make an exception. I like to make shoes for clients <laughs> when we run a case. But it takes, you know, it takes forever to make them. So they're, uh, in fact, I need to get into the mood. But right now it's really depressing because of COVID. They're talking about canceling the carnival with all the parades in New Orleans next year, because of course there's no possibility that you can socially distance. But the other thing, I guess if, if folks are listening, um, one of the things I really want uh, to let you know that if you, if you're blessed with a large network and most people are, and you're blessed with lots and lots of contacts and you're old, like I am, um, <laughs> don't, don't turn your back. A lot of folks, in our areas have been furloughed they have been uh, and quality quality people i mean some of the most brilliant people i know have been downsized you know their company went out of business because they were in the hospitality or entertainment business and their job went by the wayside or what have you and i have been spending all of my spare time when i would have might have been making shoes or doing some music shoes or something like that I've been spending my time trying to help them network and uh, find other positions uh, because there are some industries during COVID that are thriving Yes, and there are other industries that are not. And so I think right now I'm trying to help six different people. And I think two of them have finally landed positions. And the good news is that the positions they've landed are far better they have more potential and more opportunity than the positions that they were forced to leave. Yeah. You know, no ill reflection. If you're out of business, you're out of business. But right. uh, one of, one of the things that you can do if you're in a position, uh, if you have all, what good is a network if you don't use it and particularly to help other people, because right now there's a, there's a whole nother layer of crisis that's hitting our industry. Well, and I would think more people might hire people. I've been starting to think this on just having a little bit of time away. I took the two-week drive around the state of Colorado a little bit. And um, it made me think, you know, people need to have people like us in-house. Like, people need to be responsible for this work within, you know, software can't solve it. You know, you can't do 100% hands-off. It has to be a culmination of somebody owning it within the business and some and automation. Like you've got to manage your issues. And I also wonder, you know, I just met with a prospective client, $80 million of revenue. If you look, every single thing they sell, sales taxable, subject to tax, their customers might be exempt, but what they're selling is taxable. We're talking at 8%, almost $8 million of tax a year. And you don't have somebody to help you do that in terms of your company. Why don't we have that, right? Why do we think that it's such a clerical, unimportant thing when it's such a giant amount of money we're collecting on behalf of all these governments and we don't do it well because our accounting teams don't understand it. Our finance CFOs might understand conceptually, but they're not the nuts and bolts. You need the nuts and bolts, people. I think we're going to see a trajectory towards more of that specialization in terms of company knowledge 
that I would like to see that being focused upon a pit, instead of people throwing their hands up and saying, I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. It's too confusing for me. Because I don't really believe that to be true, but it is built on knowledge and experience of growing with it. But I wonder if we're going to see more of that, um, that business. Because now with Wayfair, you've got collection everywhere, which is the byproduct of sales tax. Then you've got the income tax. Then you got whatever. It's just yeah, going to grow. There's so many other layers too, though, that I've seen a, I've seen a rash of uh, plaintiff's lawyers looking carefully at new companies that are starting to collect and remit taxes. And if they're over collecting the taxes, which there seems to be a tendency for them to do, uh, then these plaintiffs' lawyers are bringing class action suits against them uh, for, because it's like a, they're over collecting a liability uh, and it's, they're, they're alleging that they're defrauding the consumers. You know, and the problem comes with states like, unfortunately, Missouri that has 12,000 different tax rates. But, um, you know, not, not that we try to make things easy for anyone, but, but nonetheless, um, well, after all, I am the Loman and Aim V. Loman. So. <laughs> well, we can just add that to the list of just like whatever 2020 is. Like, who knows? There's just, you know. Well, no, but, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that um, I never dreamed that I would be spending a lot of time with uh you know, speaking to the various states' collection agencies and trying to negotiate pay plans for the businesses who were just shut down uh, by virtue of COVID. And what's, what's even more interesting is that some of the states are still imposing penalties and interest when uh, the whole reason why the businesses were, were shut down was because of governmental mandates. Right, right, right. You know, so what... What is the, you know, and they want to get back on their feet. They've received some federal assistance. They're trying to pay their bills and they're trying to be, you know, compliant prospectively. Why on earth should states want to penalize these folks? Right. I agree with you. Yeah, but there's just all kinds of weird things going on as sort of like, I think, all right, my mother was from the South and she had a million funny sayings. But one of my favorite ones was about, how my mama used to say when a, a disaster would happen or there was a crisis. Well, she said, now, Jeanette Massey-Loman, in, in, in the entire United States of America, there is no woman that cannot be turned into a pitcher of lemonade. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I try to keep finding, you know, the good things that can come from COVID rather than focusing on um, the fact that it's there. And I think this gives everybody an opportunity to help everybody else. And yeah. that's perfect. I think there's been a lot of time and opportunity for self-reflection on how we just, in the various communities that we consider ourselves a part of, can participate, right? And so, you know, going back to and kind of trying to wrap this up, is, you know, as a community of state and local tax professionals, what do you think we can do to carry that momentum forward to just make us better and kind of round out just that, you know, 2020 is just a dumpster fire in some capacities, but like, let's, let's tighten it up. Let's come together as a community. What do you think we can do to just, you know, carry that forward with us? Well, I always like the story about um, the starfish on the beach. 
that there was this uh, person walking along the beach and there were all of just thousands and thousands of beach starfish. And there was one little guy throwing them back into the ocean just as fast as he could. And the person walking down the beach stopped him and asked him, what are you doing? You're never going to save all these starfish. And um, he said, yes, but I can save this starfish. And I think that from a state and local stack standpoint, if you start thinking about not what you can't do, but what you can do, then it just explodes. Like, for instance, um, we're also facing a lot of, um, a lot of uh, just very unfortunate political strife. And we're trying to work our way through all of that, too. And I think that there are, are lots of ways to help. Like, for instance, if you can't, if you believe in the protests and you can't join them, then you can support them in other ways. Mm-hmm. If you know that there are people who are starving, you can donate money to the food banks. You can uh, basically take care of the people you know. Uh, like, for instance, during COVID, even though I'm not a covered employee uh, employer, I have a lot of people who support me. You know, I have housekeepers and gardeners and and yoga instructors and all kinds of people that I, that, you know, that I keep that, that are basically on my own personal payroll. And I didn't cut anybody off the payroll just because we couldn't meet for yoga or they couldn't come clean my house or, you know, they couldn't come work in my yard. You know, those are the types of things that, uh, and yes, I do pay taxes on. (laughs) Of course you do. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things that um, you have to um, you really have to do what you can do. And in fact, one of the smartest women I ever had the pleasure to know uh, when I first became the director of revenue, and I was just overwhelmed because once again I was reinventing myself. And now I was this, basically, I was in charge of 2,000 people who had offices in 10 different states, and I was supposed to collect, uh, what, $14 billion worth of revenue, and I was overwhelmed. And I remember I, I was really frustrated, and I went out to, to lunch with the director of corrections. who was We were both first females in our roles. And I said, I don't know how to do this. You know, I, this doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't understand the politics. I don't understand this, that, or the other. And the employees are starving. You know, they're they're they're, you know, they're paying them so poorly that some of them qualify for assistance on top of full time jobs. I said, this is embarrassing. I don't know what to do. And she said, well, don't sit there and whine about what you can't do. Think about. She said, if you if you can't give them a raise, then give them a coat of paint. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, she was the director of corrections. And she said, if I can't give them a raise, I'll do what I can do. What can I do to make their working conditions better, to make their livelihoods better? Um, You know, I can give them flex time. I can, you know, I can do certain things that where I don't have the money. And, And what happened was I think she created a monster because when I started thinking about what I could do, Rather than what I couldn't do, I saw a million things I could do, and I started doing them one by one. Each woman had its own little separate picture of lemonade, but all of a sudden it became fun. You know, all of a sudden you were a problem solver. You weren't part of the problem, and that's 
that's what, uh, particularly in salt, because we're all wonderful people and we're all very congenial by nature. But it's called, what can you do? You can help one of your, your furloughed colleagues find a better job. Right. Uh, what, what can you do? You can give money to food banks. What can you do? Um, you can um, help and be compassionate to people who haven't had the same opportunities that you've had. Well, you obviously pushed to get the CMI for people like me who don't want to take the time to give me an opportunity to get a credential that I do value. Right, um, but right now, because of COVID, we're not getting the word out about that. No, I didn't you know, even know that. We, yeah. Well, you see, the board just uh, the board just passed that, um, and it was our last board meeting before COVID. Okay. And one of the things that I promised to do, I'm on the advisory board for state tax notes, and I'm going to write an article about the IPT because I want to get information like that out there. Yeah. I want the people in the salt world who already, the problem is with the CMI is that everybody who already has a credential thinks I already have my credential. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm saying is that 20 years from now, if you don't have a CMI, People won't give you any credence and in, in salt. Right. So, Especially if you're not a lawyer or a CPA, but once again, it's a designation that can bring value of, of a deep level of expertise, which you and I took years to get. <laughs> right. But what I'm telling you though, is that the, well, you have to have years of, of that kind of, you know, that kind of experience and that kind of education before you can even sit for the exam. Right. It's not like it's, the CMI is not like a rite of passage, like a bar exam or a, a CPA. In other words, you have to have achieved a certain level of expertise in your field before you can even sit for it. And then, uh, although they keep the uh, passage rates highly confidential, I guarantee you, uh, uh, taking that exam was not for sissies oh no uh-uh no we'll look for any sort of cmi we'll you know broadcast that but i think there's you know i think it's, that's a great place to end jeanette thank you for your work and your commitment to the profession and taking the time to share your story with us this has been the salt of Asian podcast and i'm meredith smith until next time thank you so much